This is Your Own Voice, the podcast about gender, experience, and perspective. I'm your host, Amy Breslow. Each week, I invite a different guest to share their personal experiences regarding gender and gender issues. This podcast is recorded at my kitchen table and may contain sounds of life from my home in Washington, D.C. neighborhood. Episode 1. My guest today is Amanda, who identifies herself as a biracial woman. So, welcome, Amanda. Thank you. I'm so happy to have you here. And... And just, you know, welcome to my home for anyone who's listening. We're sitting at my kitchen table and yeah. like literally sitting at my kitchen and table. And it's a wonderful rainy day outside. Yeah. It's <laughs> a, a, not not a bad atmosphere except for an intimate conversation. No, definitely um, not. And I'm just, I'm so glad that, uh, that you agreed to come on this adventure with me. And um, so, so... I think what I just like to do is I have some questions and let's just, we'll see where the conversation goes. Okay. And if we get to a few, great. And if we get to all of them, great. But um, uh, we'll just, we'll just see how this unfolds. Okay. So um, Amanda, I know that you have, you, you shared with me earlier that you have actually um, studied gender in the past and that there's certain aspects of what you do that surround gender. Mm -hmm. My first question to you is what in your personal life brought you to gender studies or gender work? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I actually, it's interesting. My undergrad is in exercise science, which is completely different. Um, but I got an opportunity to go to Sri Lanka and work for this NGO called Emerge Global which was just an amazing experience. And actually, both of my parents are from Sri Lanka. Um, and so this was seeing it in a new light. Um, but when I went there, kind of the mission of the organization was to help um, teenage girls that were survivors of sexual assault and abuse. And so for the duration of their court cases, they're placed in these, um, they're kind of, they're called shelters. So they're basically in protective uh, custody, but they are for all intents and purposes, prisons. Um, they're not allowed to go to school. Oh. No, they're not allowed to go out. No one's allowed to come in. Um, and so under the guise of protected witnesses, these girls, like we see in a lot of countries um, who are the victims or survivors, are actually punished for something that happened to them. And so while I was there, you know, I, I saw my first case was a girl, um, I think she was... I think she had just turned 10 and she just given birth to her father's uh, child. And so she was in, um, and I just will never forget because it was so hot and I was sweating and I remember I, I was so uncomfortable and I was in this tiny, tiny little room with her and I'm looking at this little child. And so I had kind of a list of questions and I had someone helping me translate. And my first question was, um, so how, well, we asked, you know, how do you feel, blah, blah, blah. But then I said, so how did you get pregnant? And she said, I don't know. Wow. And so then we had this conversation and it just stuck in my head forever because I said, okay. And then I kind of started doing these leading questions. Did anyone ever touch you? You know, blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, then she said, well, you know, my dad and I used to always play games. He always played games with me. And that was the way that she had interpreted it, not even as a violation of her bodily integrity, because she didn't even know what that meant. 
And the fact that she couldn't explain um, just kind of the basics about her body or someone else's body um, to me was very disempowering and scary. And so a lot of things that we did um, kind of while they were in the shelter was teaching them. We had this program called Beads to Business Mm -hmm. where we would teach them through jewelry making business skills. So they had to come up with like a market, you know, a brand, a marketing style. They would make this jewelry. They'd have to, you know, get fake money from the bank to buy how much they were, you know, and sell it. And um, but that jewelry was actually sold and put into a savings account for them so that when they left the shelter, they had some savings. So I think that's kind of when I first realized that there are a whole, that that story is actually extremely common. And I think one of the, what I realized while I was there was, yeah, programming is great, but if policy doesn't change, we can't really help these girls, right? We were just, I was cycling these girls through, and I think we were over 300 by the time that I left, Mm -hmm. but I wasn't really stopping that cycle, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, we were kind of preparing these girls and rehabilitating them over and over again. But I realized that the policy kind of at the front end was where we really needed to start. So that's that's my roundabout way of getting into this field. Yeah. And and did that happen before you studied gender or did you study and then go? Into so this? I actually my master's degree is in public policy. Oh, and so it's okay. more um, kind of I did a lot of human rights um, and I did a couple law classes on human rights law. Um, but no, I think the majority of my um, gender experience might be um, learned from experience and then kind of having those basic human rights frameworks in my master's degree helps kind of lay the groundwork. But um, and I think one of the big things that we've always talked about is that it's not um, it's not really a science, right? No. Like everything else. No. And that's kind of the point of even this conversation is just exploring the fact that women are multidimensional and like all human beings, extremely complex. And um, I think all of our policies need to be context specific. And we get that from actually talking to uh, women and girls. Thank you. Thank you. Coming back to your own personal life, your own personal experience, Mm -hmm. because you, you you mentioned how these girls, they weren't aware of so many things. Mm -hmm. When did you first become aware of gender roles or the differences Mm -hmm. in the genders? Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I think that my experience, um, you know, is probably similar to a lot of other uh, American children that had immigrant parents. And so there was this constant, um, it's a culture clash, right? So my mom is a Sinhalese uh, raised Buddhist, um, kind of a very conservative family in Sri Lanka. And my dad is um, a, they're called burghers. He's from European descent and was raised Catholic, you know, Christian. And so the clash between the cultures between the two of them was very interesting. And then even within our home, you know, they shared those Southeast Asian values of a focus on studies. But my mom was very interesting because um, she was very um, women's empowerment. So she, you know, she got a great degree. She's a big executive. You know, she dressed really well. She was extremely confident. And her, um, I think her most powerful uh, message was don't let anyone, you know, bully you. And that you have a voice and that, you know, she kind of always 
stress that your degree is the only thing that no one can ever take away from you. And I thought that that was a really um, empowering yeah. message. Yeah. And she, you know, she always said that you should have your degree before you got married and that you should always have your own money. And, you know, she does, she does have some uh, kind of uh, extreme views too. You know, you should make <laughs> the same amount of money as your spouse, if not more, you know, like this bargaining chip. But it is a, a bit, I think, a big message of empowerment that she was able to come to this country and be so successful and... Um, you know, she, she also talked a lot about how your confidence, um, she, she did, she did, you know, kind of had these undertones of addressing discrimination because she would say that the way that you dressed and carried yourself had a lot to do with people's interpretation of you Mm. and that it isn't just your brain and your smarts, but that, that your appearance made a difference Mm. to how people and, you know, that's an unfortunate truth, but it is true, right? And so when you're coming in, I think um, I think that's helped me a lot in the workplace because coming in, being a lot younger than everyone else and not feeling like I had as much experience, also, you know, being um, biracial and, you know, different skin color, um, I really feel like a lot of the lessons that she taught me were helpful because mm-hmm. if I come in and... If I have two things, you know, it's like you're confident and you appear professional, <laughs> at least you can um, start off from a place of, okay, people might, you know, take take you seriously. And, you know, women have uh, a different standard than men do, right? So, I, I, yes, that is absolutely true. Mm-hmm. I'm, I, can you? Can you say a few more words to that, yeah. how you perceive the different standard between, let's say if we're talking now about the workplace, between men and women yeah. in the workplace? Yeah, I think that, you know, dress code matters for both, right? And men have their own um, their own limitations of having to shave every day, you know, that women don't. But I do think it's interesting because we had, um, we have a new person coming in and um, people were looking at pictures of her. Uh, online, you know, just to do background research. Um, She's coming in at kind of a higher level. And a lot of her, um, actually all of her pictures, she has a lot of makeup on. And she, um, you know, very nicely dressed, perfect hair, high heels, everything. And I thought it was really interesting that people were judging her negatively based on that. Mm. And so they were, they were assuming that because she, you know, had contoured makeup and lip gloss and, you know, perfect blow dried hair that she was, um, I don't know what the best word, bimbo or, you know, she was getting judged negatively for that. And I think that there, there is a case to be made for this unreachable middle ground. Yeah. Right. It's (laughs) like if you come to work and you, you know, have no makeup on and you kind of, then you look tired and like, you don't care, you don't care about your appearance and people don't take you seriously. Um, but then at the other, um, and I won't even call it extreme because there aren't, it's not a set scale, but on the other side of that, if you have a woman like, um, this woman that's coming in you know, people are thinking, okay, what is she trying to make up for that she needs to be this dressed up and this, you know, like she's going to a award ceremony to come to work, right? And so it's basically this, I feel, lose-lose situation. And I've struggled um, back and forth with how much makeup to put on. Mm -hmm. And um, I have a very uh, 
curly hair naturally. And if I don't brush it, it's kind of just really wild mm. and crazy. And for a long time, I felt like it wasn't professional. Mm. And I think that, um, and this isn't the same as African-American women's hair texture, but somewhat similar where they, I think they have that struggle too with, you know, if I wear my hair natural, then all of a sudden is it not professional because it kind of looks, it looks different, right? But I got to a point where I decided, you know, I'm going to embrace my hair texture <laughs> and I'm not, you know, the hour that I would spend blow drying and straightening my hair every day, I could spend actually helping people yeah. at work. So yeah. um, I think I found kind of a middle ground with, you know, very, you know, makeup, but minimal makeup. Um, but even the fact that I have to spend any energy thinking, thinking about, about it. that exactly. is yeah. a little... Yeah. Um, no, I don't know really what to say about it. It's it's not ideal, and it's definitely different between men and women. That's that's a great example. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, that is a good example. Mm-hmm. If if you do you have any other thoughts, not that you need to, but just yeah. before I, I shift, if there's anything else that so between men and women in the yeah. workplace, yeah. Um, you know, another thing that we I was actually talking about last week because I had my. Um, evaluation, my yearly evaluation. And so I was asking for, um, not negative feedback, but areas for improvement. And I had to kind of pull it out of my manager, you know, what can I do? What can I improve? And, you know, he talked about, um, he gave an example and it was an example of me being, um, kind of overly direct. And I've had this, um, personality, I don't know want to call it, it's like a flaw sometimes. And in some ways it's like a very positive thing and has helped me, um, but of being extremely direct and almost to the point of um, too direct. And so what he had said, we kind of talked about it back and forth. And I said, oh, I've heard this before. I've had this problem. And he said, well, there's this. And I, I, I told him that, you know, it kind of bothers me when people are overly diplomatic because if you're not saying what you mean, then why even talk, right? It's just kind of a waste of time and going round and round and trying to be too nice. So he said that there was a way to be diplomatically direct. And so we we had an interesting conversation about it, but I left thinking, you know, do men in the workplace have that same um, struggle? If I am quiet, does that mean that I'm timid and I'm shy and I'm insecure, and I'm, you know, um, unsure of myself, or, and then on the, on the opposite scale, if I am loud and assertive and direct, am I a bad word? Right, right. You know, am I, am am I considered that? So I, I think women do have that struggle. And even the tone of our voices is very, very, um, criticized, heavily criticized. And and I think it's in other cultures as well in a different way, mm-hmm. probably the exact opposite, yeah, really. um, you know, for being like in Sri Lanka, a lot of the girls, when we were teaching them confidence skills, we were telling them to make eye contact. It was extremely difficult for them to do and to speak up and to look at someone in the eyes, especially a male that when you were talking to them. And that was really hard because for them, they felt like that was being too, um, like it was almost like scandalous to be that assertive and direct and to look into a man's eyes. And then here in the U S if you don't make eye contact, it's uh, a, the complete opposite effect, right? And people aren't going to trust you. But I think that the tone makes a big difference. There are women that have a higher pitch voice 
that I think also get um, kind of discriminated against. And they're kind of seen as annoying or loud or obnoxious. And it wouldn't, and that is the part that's frustrating is then it doesn't really even matter what they're saying or what they have to add. Mm -hmm. If not only a woman's appearance, but her tone of voice, her body language, the way that she dresses, you know, her, um, even like the volume of her voice can be criticized one way or another. And I think that you're in a constant lose-lose because it is dependent on the person. But the criticism and the um, judgment that I think even females do to each other is there, is mm-hmm. very real. Mm-hmm. That's, that's an excellent example. We are in a very different time and oh my god it's 2019 (laughs) i have to keep reminding myself it's already still in 2018 (laughs) 2019 and just the past couple years have been i don't even have the right words to describe when it comes to women's issues and gender issues Mm -hmm. Uh, you know what is how, how you know how does one describe the past few years but we know that it's radically different Mm -hmm. and in your opinion or in your experience, are there things that you think are possible today in the current environment that were not possible even a few years ago, given the current conversation? Hmm. So possible in a progressive way, maybe more like things that are more possible now than they used to be, even under this climate? I, I mean, I would say interpret the question how you mm-hmm. would like to interpret the question. Yeah. Hmm, that's interesting. I mean, sometimes I kind of feel like I'm in a twilight zone because I think that we're almost relitigating um, issues that I kind of thought that we all agreed on. But we've also talked about this, that with the um, elections and everything that, you know, I think that it was a, a wake up call to especially people on the left to realize that there is a very large uh, portion of this country that has a different value set that deserve to be heard, that feel that they have been um, left out of the process and that their um, you know, grievances are not addressed or thought about. And that for, you know, every four or eight years, a certain population really comes out and votes and decides, you know, enough is enough. I want to be heard. And that's what happened in this last election. And I think that it's very easy to um, be black and white and say, you know, they're wrong. I'm right. You know, they're all crazy and we're the smartest. You know, they don't believe science. We do. You know, it's very easy to get into that um, kind of frame of mind. But really, I think that I think that there's a lot of us that don't even understand each other, you know, that we don't understand that there are, if you've never lived in a um, liberal state or if you've never lived in a conservative state, the kind of the issues that are important to them and their values are different. And, and, you know, that is part of being in a melting pot Mm -hmm. that we have to somehow um, respectfully come to common ground and understanding and, Um, I just think, I think what's possible now is I think we have a moment of reckoning. Mm -hmm. I think we have a moment to say there isn't this part of the population that we're going to ignore 
and that there isn't a, you're right, I'm wrong. Mm -hmm. We have a, we, as much as the news likes to constantly say, this is the most polarized it's ever been. This is the most political turmoil there's ever been. I mean, that's just not necessarily true. I mean, there, I think about a lot like in the sixties, I wasn't around in the sixties, but that in the sixties, there were African-Americans getting killed in the streets. I mean, this wasn't that wasn't that long ago, right? And at that time, or maybe even under Nixon, people said this is the most turmoil there's ever been, you know. Um, and so I think everything is all relative. But as disappointed as I am with the political conversation right now, I think that we do have an opportunity to at least increase our awareness mm -hmm. and realize that all Americans do not feel the same way about certain issues mm -hmm. and that there are um, large uh, portions of the population that the left and the right don't understand Yeah, because the left is watching MSNBC and the right is watching Fox News. And so if I'm only talking to people that agree with me and that are just reinforcing my beliefs, you know, then if I switch over to MSNBC, it seems like, whoa, these people are you know, so extreme and so radical um, because we're never having that like middle ground, right? Do you take any um, intentional actions to engage with people from a different point of view that you do? I, I'm just curious if there's anything yeah. that you do in your life. Yeah. So, you know, for a while I was trying to watch both extreme news channels um, and I use extreme, not even in a negative way, just, you know, extremely conservative, extremely liberal. And I did that for a while where I would watch, you know, one hour, the 6 p.m. news on one, and then directly after watch one hour, just to see both sides of the issue. So there was a, I don't know, a shooting in Kansas, for example, I'm just making this up. Um, how was MSNBC covering it? And how was Fox News covering it? And that kind of tells you, okay, so what are half the people are getting this viewpoint on it and half the people are getting this viewpoint. And so then when you're actually trying to um, make your case, you understand before going into it, no, you know, there are going to be some people out there that feel this way about it. And then I can tailor my argument or messaging according to that. And we kind of do that in our foreign policy work too, right? It's trying to understand the other side. But I think it's really difficult um, on a day-to-day -day basis, depending on where you live. Yeah. Yeah. Because I think in this, you know, when I was in Michigan, uh, I'm from Ann Arbor, it was much more of a mix. And so we had a lot of conservatives, we had liberals, we had immigrants, we had, you know, all sorts of minority communities. Um, it was just, you were much more exposed. Whereas I feel like um, now in this Washington, D.C. area, um, you're kind of around a lot of people that feel the same way about things. So it's much more difficult. But I think things like this, like what you're doing and trying to talk to people with different points of view and elevating that through, you know, a pot, even if it's a podcast and even if, you know, a hundred people listen to it, maybe it's, they hear something, a different point of view, and maybe they, you know, think that I, mean, I want to learn more about that, or I understand more the next time I feel really strongly about this issue, that there's another side. Well, thank you. It's funny. I, I didn't ask you that question <laughs> for that endorsement, but I'll take it. <laughs> you have a big burden on your shoulders to change everyone's opinion. Uh, I, I'm not going to touch that. <laughs> um, 
So totally shifting gears okay. within the same, you know, the, the realm of the conversation, but on a different tact. Can you tell me about any dream or goal that you wanted to pursue, but either you didn't try or you gave up because of gender issues? Hmm. You know, this is going to be probably a very different answer than you're expecting. I love it. Bring it on. <laughs> but I will tell you um, that since I was a child, I always wanted to have a big family. And I wanted to have seven children. That was my goal. I mean, it didn't have to be seven, but a lot of kids. I wanted to um, have a family, and I wanted to have a lot of children running around, and I wanted to be a mom. And I really felt from a very young age that that was my purpose. And not that I wouldn't have a job, but that was something that was really important to me. And it was interesting because um, when I went to college, I kind of started getting more into you know, academics and thinking about a career. And I was still thinking about a career with the lens of, I need to be able to be a mom while I do this, Mm -hmm. which I don't know if men, you know, if they have the same concern or not, some of them probably do. And maybe some don't, and, um, maybe some women do, and maybe they don't either. Uh You know, they think, um, you can make the decision on the career that you want and then kind of let everything fit around that. But I realized in undergrad um, that that's really what I was doing. I was planning around this gender norm Mm. that I wanted. Um, And I think it's interesting now because it's almost like I didn't pursue that in um, in furtherance of my career. Because I knew, okay, I remember having a conversation, I don't remember if it was with my dad or sister or someone, um, when I was thinking about getting married a long time ago, I mean, really, really young. And I'm very glad that I didn't do that. You know, multiple times I felt like I had these opportunities to and I didn't. Um, But it's interesting because your ideas about what's expected of you change over time as you change. Um, And that's why I'm so worried about... um, you know, that's why child marriage and adolescent pregnancy really kind of concerns me because I can see how much I've changed yeah. in the last five years yeah. from 25 to 30. It's like a completely different person. I mean, different goals, values, ambitions, hobbies, everything. Um, and so I think not having a family um, has allowed me to kind of take you know, move around, go to Sri Lanka, move to DC and, um, kind of follow this career path. But I will say, so, so maybe, um, to answer your question, it's like, I think that there was a time where I was planning around very traditional gender, uh, norms. And then there was a time where I was completely rejecting Mm -hmm. the gender norms. And now I feel like now in my thirties, I'm kind of coming to this balance of, okay, so what really do I want? Yeah. I mean, do I do I need to have the extreme, you know, highly successful career person or the other extreme, you know, seven children, you know, in a house? Maybe it's something in the middle or, you know. Um, so I think that that's interesting. And I also think it's interesting that that um, idea wasn't forced on me by anyone. And I, you know, I really distinctly, I can, there is no... Um, instance where my mom or anyone in my family or in school that someone said you should be a mom 
when you grow up and you should focus on having a bunch of children. And, you know, no one ever told me that. And that's not even an American, you know, established value. Um, but that just shows how women are complex. And everybody has um, a different interpretation of what their role is and what would be interesting and empowering to them. And it changes, yeah, right, yeah. from year to year, month yes. to month. Yes. And I don't know about other people, but maybe for them too in their 30s, week to week and day to day on what they think they want um, and what they think people expect, you know, that you should be married by the time you're 30. Why, why do I feel that way? Why does it have to be that way? And, you know, do men in their 30s feel that same um, pressure and, you know, I also think that just the age and the biology aspect to me is very, um, it's very stressful. It's extremely stressful to me because I think about decisions that I have to make now and they're all very future-based because of this biological limitation that I have that if I want to have, you know, four kids that I probably should start <laughs> pretty soon. <laughs> Um, but I mean, so I, I just think it's interesting. I think it's interesting that different, um, you know, that women can have these different goals and ambitions that can change so radically. Um, and I think we need to think about that when we're planning any type of policy program that it's not a one size fit all. And, um, we can't assume that whatever values we think are important are important to another set of women. Thank you. Thank you. That, uh, that was a long-winded answer, no, and I don't think answer. I answered your question, but I went round and round. Maybe we got back to it. <laughs> <Let's> <laughs> say, you, you answered what was true for you, and that's all that I'm interested in. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the, I, this, is, this is the first time that I'm doing this, and truly what I care about is having a conversation around gender mm -hmm. for what's important for what's important to you mm -hmm. and and my questions are just literally like a springboard just to dive off dive off of and if it takes us in one direction great and if it takes us in another direction because i think the things that you said are really valuable regardless of whether they're answering the question or not okay. <laughs> <laughs> um so kind of on uh, on a similar tact whether it was a dream or a goal you know, that you've talked about there or didn't talk about there. <laughs> Can you tell me a time that you thought, uh, you know, hey, I can't do X. Or if I did do X, you know, fill in the blank, mm -hmm. the consequences would be so great that I'm going to choose not to do it. I mean, I think on a small scale, I think I have that struggle maybe every day in the workplace. Can you give me an example? Yeah. I mean, I think going back to this assertiveness versus, um, you know, being more diplomatic. Yeah. I mean, that's off the top. That's just right in the front of my mind because of this past week. But, um, I feel that way a lot, you know, that, you know, should I be more pushy or should I not have sent that email that way? Should I have been, you know, less direct and kind of questioning, um, questioning my own kind of natural assertiveness because I don't want it to be interpreted negatively and I still want to, um, be effective 
right? You don't want your personality flaws to affect your message or your goal or appearance or people's interpretation of you. Um, Is there something that you'd like, you know, just regular everyday folk to start doing now to make a change around issues of gender? Like just in the United States, if there's one thing I wish that folks living in this country would do X yeah. to make a change around gender. Hmm. Well, I think the conversations need to happen. And that's my, that's my struggle is with the geographic, just the way the population is distributed. You have these huge pockets, rural pockets, and these huge, you know, urban area, more liberal pockets that it's really hard for me to, um, say like, well, we need to start going out to lunch with, um, you know, you and I need to go out to lunch with someone that thinks something completely different than us. We don't even have access. Right. Um, but I really feel like the biggest difference that for me in my personal life is just exposure. Mm. I mean, I cannot think of any, there is nothing that could, nothing that I could read on my computer screen or in a book that would give me the same insight that I had actually with those girls every day. I mean, no matter what. And I I don't even know that a movie or a documentary would have been the same as that exposure and talking to them and talk and, you know, just like what you're doing, like asking these questions, kind of pulling it out to learn more. It, it's really hard. Um, and I think that the biggest way to change is, is really exposure. And so if I sit down, you know, with someone that voted differently than me, instead of seeing them on the news, right, protesting and screaming and yelling, but if I'm sitting down with them like this, it would be very difficult to scream and yell and shout and kick and scream, right? You'd, it's almost like you'd be, if you have an open mind and you're inquisitive and you're asking questions like, why do you feel that, um, you know, women shouldn't have access to birth control? Mm-hmm. Okay. Normally we say, okay, of course they should, you know, there's one side that says, oh, of course they should, they should have access to anything they want. And there's another side that has their own valid, um, you know, opinions and reasons that they feel. And you would never know that, right? We, we assume that there is, um, a unscientific religious basis for decisions on the right and on the left, you know, maybe they assume that there's this radical sexual left agenda, you know, feminist agenda, like way, and maybe it's neither of those things. Maybe there are, maybe they've had their own personal experience and maybe, um, they've had a family member that had a personal experience and that influenced why they feel that way. I don't know. But without having that conversation, it's so much easier if you're like on the news saying like women shouldn't have birth control. It's so much easier for the conversation to just stop there and for me to say, those people are crazy. And that's it. The convers- There's no conversation. It's over if I'm right and you're wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I mean, it's really difficult, but I honestly feel like exposure mm-hmm is the best way. And I think that the news stations, um, that do try to uh, bring an opposite point of view, I don't think that it is, um, helping anything actually, 
because I see like on, you know, MSNBC or something, they'll have a big panel, right? There's like four people, three are all agree with the anchor and then they bring one, you know, conservative in and they just eat him alive, you know, and humiliate him and cut him off and don't let him talk. And it's this very disrespectful exchange that happens on the right too. And you yeah. see it on Fox News, you know, they'll bring one liberal person and they kind of all just, you know, are on the attack. Um, are they really listening to each other? I mean, they're cutting each other off. They're not letting anyone get a full sentence out, um, especially when the emotions are getting high. I don't think it's really a good example I don't think we really learn anything mm -hmm. from that. I mean, I think these one-on-one -on -one conversations are helpful. Um, kind of a longer, like a half an hour interview, we can really get into things one-on-one -on -one with someone. But I don't think that the news is a good um, exposure <laughs> example um, on either side, because I think you're still just reinforcing your same ideas, right? So, um yeah, my answer is exposure, but how we get to that stage, I, I, I'm not sure because of the way this country is kind of demographically distributed. It's really difficult. So it's an interesting question. I don't know. Maybe you yeah. have ideas. I, I think media. I, well, I've heard, it's funny. I've heard of one organization. I've not yet personally checked them out, but mm -hmm. they're actually on my to-do list. I tried okay. to go to one of their events and they were full. It's called Better Angels. Mm. Have you heard of them? No, no. Someone told me about them, and this is this is literally just what I got from the website. Like yeah. you'd have to check it out yourself. Mm -hmm. um, but apparently, their goal is bringing people from both sides of the political spectrum mm -hmm. together and to have respectful conversations. And they allow mm -hmm. they they do training. And they allow observers to come and to watch. So you either can participate yourself mm -hmm. or you can watch other people participate. Okay. So that's one thing that... That um, is great. Yeah. And if they, have, um, if they have access to two people from different sides of the aisle that live near each other, that's the issue. It's like, yeah, so you could watch something that I think it would be very interesting and eye-opening, especially if they're being respectful. I mean, that's the problem on the news. like they're all yelling at each other mm -hmm. and you can't hear anyone. And it just reinforces this black and white. And, um, that if someone feels different, you should be angry about it. I mean, do I have to really feel angry if, if you feel that, um, I guess it depends on the issue. There are some issues where passion and <laughs> are important <laughs> to change, but, um, I think that the respect, that level of respect or even any ounce of respect is lost in a lot of the forums where we're getting our information. Yeah. And so um, this Better Angels thing, I will check it out. I think that's really interesting. I, yeah, I can think of uh, definitely media, but then on more of an individual level, I honestly, you know, besides just face-to-face -face exposure, which isn't possible all the time, there is... Um, self-learning, right? I mean, there is like, okay, I want to learn more about um, a community that I don't understand, maybe uh, trans the transgender community. How can I learn more about that? Okay, well, maybe I should research, um, start at the basics. What does the word mean? What is the lingo? Not all of them are the same. Maybe, some, you know, some people feel differently. How can I talk about this and, you know, read a couple of people's stories? There is an element of self-learning and responsibility that we have, um, you know, to 
broaden our horizons and hear other people's point of views and even things that, you know, you disagree with. Is there some place in your life where you decided to push on anyway, even though gender expectations or gender norms told you not to? Mm-hmm. Mm, this is interesting. So I will say um, I was able to do a short period of time, uh, about five months at uh, the Department of Defense uh, two years ago just a, like a five month rotation over there. And, um, I will say that going into that, I was extremely nervous about my gender and just how people would view me. If anyone would take me seriously, you know, how it would be. And it was interesting because, um, one of my supervisors kept checking in with me about that. Do you feel people are, you know, mansplaining to you do you feel like people are talking down to you he was very concerned that a supervisor um, over at at dod DOD. Uh yeah was very concerned um just wanted to make sure that i didn't have a bad experience and i think also from his own perspective um wanted to get that perspective that that understanding of okay so you know i'm what is the experience of someone that is non-military and a female trying to do policy at DOD. And he really wanted to make sure that I think it was one, that I had a good experience, but two, just for him to learn about more about even his own culture there and how people were being, you know, he just, he, he was very interested and he wanted to make sure that I was comfortable to come and tell him if I ever felt that way. And he had this conversation with me really, really early on. And I remember, um, I, kind of at the very beginning and when I would go to meetings, I would sit in the back, you know, even if no one was there yet and there were seats at the table, I would sit on the edge of the room, you know, kind of in the back. And, um, there were, especially at the beginning, I kind of kept quiet. I didn't want to say anything. If someone called on me, I'd try, you know, to say it as quickly as possible, whatever I had to say so I could stop talking. Um, but as time went on, you know, we kept kind of checking in on this question. I actually felt like my age was more of a um, discrimination tactic against me than my gender was. Interesting. I, yeah. I, was, I was actually going to ask, I'm still going to ask the question. Yeah. And you maybe just answered it, but okay. I, I'm going to ask it anyway. Okay. What I was going to say is that why do you think mm-hmm. you sat in the back and you didn't mm-hmm. come to the table? And why do you think that you, you know, tried to talk quickly and not keep you know attention to yourself yeah and so what what is yeah I think both was um one I think the biggest was a lack of confidence you know I felt like I wasn't confident that I knew enough about what was going to be discussed at the meeting to um, add value so I wasn't confident in myself Mm -hmm. you know and I wasn't at that point I mean I had only um been working in that field for a year and I, I hadn't built that confidence where I thought, okay, I can add something to this conversation, whether I'm read in or not, I can add something. I did not feel that way at that time. So I think, um, sitting in the back and then also, I think the sitting in the back was not trying to draw attention. Um, but I think the say talking as fast as I possibly could so that I could stop was I was worried <laughs> that I was going to say the wrong okay. thing. Yeah. And I think for both of those, um, 
feelings that I had that there was a gender aspect to it. You know, I'm not sure if I was a, um, you know, a 30 year old white male, if I would have felt intimidated as intimidated. I think I'm, sh I'm sure there are other people that are intimidated if they're not in uniform and everyone else is. Um, I'm not sure if they would feel as intimidated as I did wearing, um, you know, a skirt and <laughs> being a young girl, like walking into this room and nobody knows who you are. But I will say as time went on, um, I did get more confident. Um, I still never really wanted to be like, you know, sitting in the front, 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 front. But, um, I think though, while I, since I was aware of this question, you know, that my supervisor was asking me, I really felt like it was age more than anything else. And I think the reason why is that I saw, I, I, I never, um, I never had anyone make me feel uncomfortable because I was a woman. I never had anyone, um, not take an idea that I had or not take me seriously. Um, and so I just didn't have that experience, but I think it was also because I saw women there that were in very powerful positions and were very confident and they were civilians and they came in and they controlled the room and they led the meeting and people were nodding and smiling at them and, you know, but they were older and they were more experienced. And I think I took that back to me when I went back to my regular job too, was that, um, I felt like it was age mm -hmm. more than gender, maybe because the, um, the parity, like the representation is higher. So like in my current workplace, most of the time I feel like there are more females in a room than there are males. And, you know, even though at DOD, there were definitely more males than females. Um, I felt like the females were all being taken very seriously. And I mean, that, that is a very, um, you know, uh, small, piece of the department of defense. I mean, that's not the armed forces, you know, that's in an office environment. And so I'm not saying that that's uh, reflective of everyone's um, experience or the, you know, the culture as a whole. Um, but I really felt like age was more, I was getting judged more for being young than I was for anything else. Um, but I do, I have a friend, uh, we both have a friend um, who talks a lot about intersecting vulnerabilities and the first time she mentioned this to me, I have been thinking about it a lot. Can you describe what yeah, that means? Yeah, so what she, so we were talking about um, persons with disabilities mm -hmm. in the context of humanitarian programming. And we were basically trying to decide, we had listed out um, the categories that of people that we felt fell under this vulnerable um, distinction. And so there was uh, persons with disabilities, you know, f women, girls, female headed households. And then we were kind of talking about, okay, um, religious minorities. And, and then I started, then we kind of had a little theoretical conversation. Okay. So you're a woman, you're a religious minority and you have a disability. Then, then what are you more vulnerable than, you know, someone that has, just one of those than just women or, you know, should we tailor our program to these more complex, uh, vulnerable people? It doesn't need to be different. You know, we were just kind of having this theoretical conversation and she, you know, she described it as, um, that they were, they had intersecting vulnerabilities and so that there were multiple layers that were, um, putting them more at risk of violence and exploitation. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was really interesting kind of just the way that she phrased it. And so now I kind of think about that 
in my own personal life, like what are the, what are my intersecting and, you know, it's not necessarily vulnerabilities, but, um, you know, uh, areas that I can be discriminated against or, you know, however you want to phrase it. Okay. So you're, and I talk about this a lot with my sisters, you know, if they have issues, we share issues in the workplace and I've actually used this with them is that you have this, you have intersecting factors working against you. You're young, you're a woman and you're, you know, not white. Right. And th- those three things in itself have, um, are things that you need to be aware of, you know, before when you're thinking about how is what I'm saying being interpreted? How is my, why are my actions, um, or words judged differently than someone else's. Do I have more than one layer, um, you know, that is in this category of, you know, usually discriminated against or whatever the right way is to say that. Um, and so I think that that goes along with the conversations that you and I have all the time about this multi dimension, you know, dimensionality of gender and women and how, you know, a a trans, you know, a, a homosexual man in some cultures or areas can be more vulnerable than, um, a woman. Right. Yeah. And so it's not just that women and girls are vulnerable because they're women and girls. You have intersecting vulnerabilities that heighten your risk of violence and exploitation and that, you know, reduce your opportunities. And that is just not, it's not just, um, your sex, right? Your male or female that, and that's where the gender word is so important. And that's why it comes in because we're talking about based on that culture, what is expected of you? It's um, a, a, an yeah. excellent response. Th- I mean, really, thank you, Amanda. You, you touched, you touched on many, you touched on many, many things there. Your own voice is produced by your host and is registered by protect right with technical support from Alex Moreno. I'm Amy Breslow. Thank you for joining me. I'll be back in two weeks with the next episode, and I look forward to seeing you then.